This episode of the YVR Screen Scene Podcast is sponsored by the Union of British Columbia Performers. UBCP is an autonomous branch of the Alliance of Canadian Cinema, Television, and Radio Artists. For more about UBCP Actra, visit ubcp.com. That's ubcp.com. This episode was sponsored in part by listeners like you. Join our Patreon community and receive early access to episodes, bonus content, stickers, buttons, and more. Visit www.patreon.com slash Podcast. Welcome to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast, where we pull back the curtain and expose the beating heart of the Vancouver film and television industry, namely the actors and filmmakers and other talented artists who do the work. Capital T, capital W. I am your host, Sabrina Firminger. And today, I am delighted to welcome Lee Shorten to the YVR Screen Scene Podcast. Now, this is Lee's first appearance on the podcast, but it's hardly the first time his name has been mentioned. You can see my interviews with Mayumi Yoshida and Hiro Kanagawa and Barbara Lee for reference. Lee is an actor and a filmmaker who brings a, dare I say, unique perspective to both of those roles. As an actor, I love that you laughed and I'm totally going to ask for your rebuttal on everything I'm saying. Um, So as an actor, Lee digs for nuance and authenticity. We saw it in The Man in the High Castle. We saw it in The Terror Infamy. We saw it in It's Not You, It's Not Me, a short film about asexuality and sexuality. I've seen Lee in a lot of things including in a modern-day version of William Shakespeare where they're all living in some Vancouver townhouse. And even though I'm a fan of Lee's, I often forget that I'm watching the same guy every time. So successfully does he crawl into a given role. As a filmmaker, Lee is sensitive and boundary-pushing. He wrote and directed Parabola, a fearless short starring Hiro Kanagawa as an aging Yakuza and Mayumi Oshida as his emotionally fraught daughter. Before that, Lee wrote and starred in a short film, The Day We Met, that was funded by Story Hive, co-directed by Mayumi and Nat Studz Dimeta, and inspired by Lee's own adoption story. And he co-wrote and co-directed The Chattening, a horror comedy short that mined horror film tropes and made me cry tears of laughter and is actually really hard to describe. So I'm just going to include a link in the show notes and y'all can go and watch it. And Lee has not slowed down during the core, as I like to refer to the social isolation quarantine of COVID-19. He is still creating work, at least, what, like three films at last count? And according to his Twitter feed, which I follow with much enthusiasm, he is still writing. So today, I want to talk to Lee Shorten about the Lee Shorten filmography. I want to talk about how he's pushing himself to be creative during the core, and also why. And I want to find out where he plans to take us next. And to top it off, we are going to play a spirited game of favorite things. Lee Shorten, hey. Welcome to the hey, podcast. 
<laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was that was quite the introduction. I do try to do quite the introduction. So um, I noticed you laughed. Where did you laugh? Let me check my script. Uh, brings a unique perspective to both of those roles. Why did you laugh at that point, Lee? Uh, well, I guess I was just curious. Uh, <laughs> like I suppose, a what you know, what what you think is unique, and then b the cynical part of me is like, is that is that a diplomatic? Is that a diplomatic description of for, for something? Hmm. I don't really go for diplomacy um, <laughs> on this. Well, you know, when I say perspective, I definitely mean like POV, and everything I described is literally just me on the outside as somebody who is watching your career, you know, and making a lot of assumptions, you know, um, I'm just totally writing about how I feel about the things that you do. You know, I definitely personally, I feel if you want to hear my personal thing, that uh, there is such a thing as a Lee shortened film. And even though they're all vastly different, there does seem to be a thread that runs through them that is your own unique perspective. And uh, as an actor, I would argue the same thing. So if you want to rebut that, you're welcome to. But I'm just a fan, so. Well, I, I appreciate that a lot. <laughs> no, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna rebut that. I, like it's the opposite. I mean, that means a lot to me, and uh, I'm very humbled that, that you would say that. Actually, on, on both fronts. Oh well, keep creating work. That's all I ask. Listen, Lee, because we are in the core, the quarantine of COVID nineteen. Um, I like to begin these interviews asking very sincerely, "How are you doing?" Um, you know, I think like everyone else, you know, good days, bad days. Yeah. And the first month was actually surprisingly really easy. Um, hmm. it, it, it was fine. It was fine. But then, you know, as, as it continues to drag on, I think there's more days where it's very frustrating and depressing. And But then there's days where it seems fine again. So Yeah. I have noticed, which I didn't mention in my intro, that you have been – seemingly on the outside looking in really productive i mean you have made how many films during like tell me about the filmmaking that you are doing during covid19 and and why and how and what <laughs> yeah. um well you know appearances can be deceiving it's like you know social media is always the best of us but uh uh so um bob Bob Woolsey, who's a who's a writer and an instructor at VFS, I just noticed that he was doing this weekly quarantine film challenge, where you you had to write a two page script, you know, and he gives you like a theme and a line of dialogue, and then you turn in this two page script on Friday night, and then Saturday morning you get a random script that someone else has written, and then you have to just shoot it over the weekend. Wow! And yeah, which is kind of cool and different, and you know, for me, like. I always like to get different perspectives on things. So originally, you know, most of my, most of my writing, I've tended to direct myself and I've really only directed things that I've written with certain, with like one exception. So, yeah. that, you know, also, you know, as a director, when you decide to direct something, usually it's because you have a very, 
you feel very strongly about the material, you feel very connected to the material, and you think you have a vision and a POV. Mm. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. So I thought this was a nice challenge where you wouldn't have that and you wouldn't have any prep and you wouldn't have location scouting. So I just wanted to challenge myself, really. And also, I'm in the middle of like rewriting a, a feature and a pilot. And I, these is like my procrastination. It's like if I make these shorts, I can tell myself I'm being productive, even though I'm not working on the things I probably should do. <laughs> And yet I'm assuming, though, the experience of of shooting something that you haven't written, you know, I mean, yes, procrastination, but also like changing your perspective, like, you know, how has and how has this helped you or changed you as an artist? Um, well, you know, I think. It was like uh, uh, part of the rules that you got to shoot on your phone and you can, you know, you can't leave your apartment and, and you know, all, you got to abide by all the guidelines. So for me, obviously, usually I've worked with a DP. So it's been very interesting to just only have a phone on myself and I don't really know how to light anything. So only shooting in natural light. But it was good to kind of do something where you and, and I'm not about control, quite the opposite. I, I'm all about getting collaborators. But it was interesting where everything is on you, where you mm. have, you have, you're responsible for every step, the music selection, the shot selection, the lighting, the editing, y- y- the coloring. And, you know, as a director, you, you kind of steer all that, but you usually have experts and you're just, they're bringing you options and they're suggesting things and you're kind of just picking like a buffet. Whereas yeah. this is like being the total chef. So, you know, I, I learned, I learned a lot, I think. Okay. Um, what can you, before we go on, what screenplay are you working on? Is it a feature length version of Parabola? Tell me it's a feature length version of Parabola. Uh, well, I'm actually working on a couple of things, but one of them is a feature length version of Parabola. Yes. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited <laughs> that I still, I still remember, you know, cause I, I had watched the film on my laptop before I spoke to you. And then I also got to see it on the big screen at the crazy eight Scala. And it's like, I was, it's, it's imprinted on me. It's so exciting. I can't wait to see it on the big screen. Oh, thank you. So, no, so I didn't just me, really. get you on here just to make compliments, okay? Like, <laughs> I actually, I do have a question for you. So, I mean, you are, how do you think of yourself? I mean, because you're somebody who wears different hats. Are you an actor first? Are you a filmmaker first? Do you eschew all labels? Like, tell me how you think of yourself and describe yourself. <laughs> Uh, I mean, chronologically, I was an actor first, but um, how do I think of myself? I think at the end of the day, even no matter, no matter what you're doing, acting, writing, directing, lighting, music, coloring, everything you do should be in service to the story, all your choices and everything. It's all about story number one. Mm. So I think no matter, so I think all those professions or subclasses or cultures or whatever you want to call it i think they're all just storytellers you just hold a different piece of the puzzle so uh, i think i just think of myself as a storyteller no matter no matter what hat i'm wearing that is that's rad i hope you just like make a business card that's like lee shorten storyteller and that's all it says like not even contact (laughs) info just give that out but you know, so, as so pretentious when you put it that way. It does, but I, <laughs> I like it too. I, if I got a business card like that, I would cherish it. Um, but as an actor, 
in a community of actors? Like, what kind of fears do you have for the future of your profession? Like, you know, especially as we move forward, we in BC are entering um, the so-called phase two, thanks to Dr. Bonnie Henry, uh, although there's still not a lot of talk about when productions will resume. Um, but like, what, what will make you feel safe going back to set? Uh, I mean, ultimately a vaccine will, yeah. will be the, the thing. Uh, I think in some ways actors have it the toughest because really they're the only ones that move between every department because theoretically a director you know does two but they could be watching monitors and they could be remote whereas you know actors have to deal with wardrobe camera makeup the director the dp yeah actors and stunt artists i mean those are really the anybody who's seen on screen those are the yeah those are the groups yeah so but i mean I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, it's, I don't know. Cause I want to go back to work, you know, yeah. <laughs> we all do. And I, you know, when, when you look historically and the fastest of vaccines ever been this like 18 months, I can't see us waiting 18 months for a vaccine. So I yeah. think it'll just have to be, they have good protocols. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm leaving that big pause in there because I felt like that like was ellipsis was very indicative of how a lot of us who love actors and production are looking at production, like no idea what's going to happen. And I have so many people coming to me being like, when is it going to pick up again? And I'm like, there's no crystal ball for this, like, yeah. you know, until there's a vaccine. So how are you as an actor then staying active or engaged or like working out your like acting muscle you can't see me but i'm doing like flexing i'm assuming that's what actors do you're like pumping acting muscles that's that's an integral part of my process yeah (laughs) uh well like i read a lot i suppose and i i watch a lot of content um because i yeah, like like just reading a lot of scripts and, and watching a lot of TV and a lot of movies, and because I I, I weirdly tend to come across things, come at things with it with more of like a critical eye. Like yeah. I'll, I'll watch a show and be like, okay, so why did they make that choice? How does that choice serve the story? How would I have played that? So, I, I guess that's how I've kind of been working out the acting muscle. Is that enjoyable? Like as somebody, because I know a lot of people go into the arts and go into acting and f- directing and writing because you know they fall in love with film and TV as a kid and they want to go and be part of the magic, you know. And then they like go into <laughs> the profession, and then they, it's like all the magic, like they get that peek behind the curtain. You know, are you like? Does that take away? Has that taken away being part of the film and TV industry? Has it taken away from your enjoyment of watching film and TV and web series, especially if you're, you've ended up being so critical? I don't, I don't think so because I, I like, I love the technicalities and I love the process and, you know, um, I, I kind of, my, my film journey really started in, you know, in college, my liberal arts major was film studies. So I've always come at film in a kind of that sort of way. So I love it because I'll, I'll watch a movie and I'm like, sometimes it's more like, how the hell did they get that shot? 
Yeah. Or like, man, that's so impressive. I never would have thought to move the camera that way, but that's that's genius. So, you know, I, critical often tends to have like such a negative connotation around the word, but I, I almost mean it in like a positive sense. Yeah. Okay. You're like um you're like an explorer. You're like an Indiana Jones type going in when you watch films. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll take it. <laughs> what are you watching during this time? Like what kind kind of content are you consuming during the core? I'm really trying to make the um, core happen. <laughs> I don't want other people to say it. I mean, I've never heard anyone else say it. It's pretty good. It's so if if it's gonna happen, it's gonna be you. Thank you. you. The core. Um, uh, I watched Devs on Hulu. That was that was good. Um, that's Alex Garland's show. Yeah, I've heard good things. Tricky. Yeah. Well, if you like Alex Garland, if you don't like Alex Garland, you probably won't like it. But yeah, I watched that. I rewatched Daria. Um, Awesome. Oh yeah, you were tweeting out some uh, some gifts from that. I I noticed that. Yeah, yeah I'm a, I follow your. I, I my content I take in is I look at Twitter, and Twitter feeds. Watching Daria, eh? What did you What did you get out of that? Uh, I I'd love this show. Watching it when I was younger, and then when it was available again, I just had to watch it, and uh, it was even better than I remember. But I really, it was awesome. That makes me happy. I'm glad. Why do you think content and the arts, like what role do you think they're playing during the core? The core. Oh, <laughs> well, I guess it depends. That's probably many things to different people. But, you know, like it's always what it's always done, I suppose, is escapism. Um, yeah. You, you felt escaping into the animated hijinks of Daria. Well, I was in like a like I, I think, and I was talking to Brittany Lamcho about this the other day. Like sometimes when you spend a lot of time by yourself, because you know, and you're quarantined and lockdown, you tend to like go on a bit of a trip down memory lane. Like mm. like you go on a bit of an introspective journey. Yeah. So I th- I've been thinking a lot about high school and stuff lately, and then I guess watching Daria was kind of like a way to go back to that time as well yeah i always love to end with some time travel but let's let's bring it in right here if you could go back right now uh we'll we'll get in the delorean and and zoom past uh all of this including the core uh and go (laughs) see yourself in high school and you got like a minute to go and give yourself some words of wisdom First of all, what kind of person are we meeting there? And two, what would you say to him? Oh, what kind of person are we meeting? Yeah. Uh, well, what, what, uh, how old are we? Like 16 or like 14? Or? Let's say 15. Um, because that is like really when you are in the throes, at least for me, uh, of identity crisis, hormones. Oh my God, there's the pressure in just a couple of years. We got to go to university. Who am I going to be? What am I going to be? What is on my face? You know, all that stuff. All that good stuff. Yeah. All the Um, good stuff. Yeah. You know, high school, I was a bit of like a, in the middle person. Like I, wasn't super popular and I wasn't super outcast either. I was just firmly in the middle for whatever yeah. reason. But I think I would say to me, um, 
two things. I would say definitely worry a lot less about everyone else's opinions, thoughts, and expectations of you. Mm. And then also I would say that um, the, the only thing that matters and the most important thing that matters is to be kind to others. Oh, that's such good advice. How do you think 15-year-old you would have reacted to that advice? Um, probably well, I think. Because, um, you, you know, like, at, at, like a lot of my life has been I'm, I'm pretty decent at a lot of things, not particularly good at any one thing. And I, until I found, like, this career, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. So there's a lot of time being lost. And then there was a lot of everyone else telling me what I should do. Like you should go to law school, which I did, or you should go to med school or you should do this and you should do that. And so there was a lot of just trying to please people and and, and live up to expectations. So I think he would appreciate that. And then the kindness thing, you know, uh, you know, I think I was always a reasonably kind person, but you know, in high school you start to worry about the currency of cool a little bit more. Mm. So maybe sometimes you don't, stick up for someone who's being picked on or maybe sometimes you say something a little hurtful for cool points or you're more worried about trying to get in with the cool kids than hanging out with the person who's actually interesting or whatever yeah you know what i love about that though is that you do seem like the epitome of cool or at least you surround yourself with some of the coolest people like mayumi and hiro so you know i think you found the you found the cool group Yeah, maybe. I think you absolutely did. Um, I I do want to spend a bit of time talking about High Castle. R.I.P. High Castle. R.I.P. your character on High Castle from before that. But, you know, because what, uh, I mean, so High Castle available on Amazon Prime. Everybody should go and watch it. Jesus Christ. Uh, a, A weirdly satisfying journey for the core, frankly. If you want a world that's way more fucked up than ours, go and watch Man on the High Castle. But, you know, I could assume from the outside looking in that... It was, uh, it represented a paradigm shift for you as an artist. Is that correct to make that assumption? Yes. Yeah. So t- tell me, let's reflect on High Castle then. Tell me about what you learned and how it changed you. Uh, well, High Castle was the first show where I had a, like a decent sized role that was ongoing. Yeah. So that, that was, that was big and new and challenging because you know, up until then, so much of my film and TV, you don't really have to worry about building a character arc and, and kind of creating a journey for your character to go on. Or, and let's be real, half the time you're not even playing a character, you're playing an occupation because mm. you're you know, one or cop number two. And it's not it's not really acting in, in, in many ways. Um, so there was that. Uh, but I, I look, I was super fortunate because, you know, most of my scenes were with Joel De La Fuente. Who oh, is, my God, you lucky, yeah. lucky man. I know, because he is not only a phenomenally, phenomenally talented actor, he is one of the most nice, nicest professional, most generous human beings on the face of the earth. So I, I could see sometimes when you start out your journey, you get paired with an actor who is not that generous, whereas he was very willing to talk to me about his process and, and help me through. And he told me a lot about not only just like the, the craft of acting, but, you know, set etiquette and, and, and everything he did was very empowering because, again, sometimes – when you're when you're like a guest on a show, 
you, you feel like you can't do things. Mm. Um, and in any ways, you can't because you're not there. The show isn't there for you. You're there to serve the show. So you, 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 t- you tend to try and make as little noise as possible and just do your job. So there'd be times like, and just this is a very rudimentary example, but we had to like push open these doors and storm into this factory. And the doors were really hard to open because they kept getting stuck. Mm. And so it just became very hard. And Joel was like, well, you should just tell the director and they'll get a a grip or a PA to open the doors for you so you don't have to worry about it. And it's like, oh, I can do that? Isn't isn't that an inconvenience? Shouldn't I be opening these doors? He's like, no, because – the doors are clearly stuck and you're having problems, which is affecting your acting performance, which is more important. So just get someone else to do it. And I'm like, oh, I didn't, I would never do that. But now I see that I can do that and how it's not really, that's not really diva behavior because it's in the service of telling the story better. Not like, get me a hot latte. Oh, this isn't hot enough. It's like, (laughs) you know, it's as, as long as you're coming from a place of, I just need to do my job the best I can. Can you please help me do that? I think it's okay. Uh, your character was so beloved. And I know that there was a lot of um, anguish when we no longer got to see him. Were you surprised at all by by how well-received he was and, and by the I, reaction I w- <laughs> of fans? I was, like, in the nicest way. I mean, yeah. because, you know, the first thing... Joel and I do when we're together on a screen is like gas a family with two children. Yeah. And then a couple of episodes later, I like slap Juliana. So um, <laughs> he's very clearly not a good person. Yeah, no, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, as an actor, you're not trying to play a villain. So, you know, we're always trying to, why does this guy do the things that he does? And why does he think he's right? And, you're always trying to find his humanity. So I was pleased in the sense that I guess that translated. Oh, so you're saying that like when you're playing a villain, the villain doesn't think that he's a villain. He thinks that he's right and doing something right. So you don't play up the villainy, you play up the humanity and his POV. Well, yes, but then again, going back to my earlier thing, it's always like, what's right for the story? Because Mm. let's say the Joker, uh, in order for the Joker to best serve the story, you don't want to see his humanity. Instead, you want to see someone who who revels in being a villain. And if you were to find the humanity in the Joker, I think that would undercut the story. Whereas, say, Magneto or Killmonger, it's the opposite. The strength, the the way they best challenge the protagonist is by offering a compelling, an equally compelling point of view. Yes, I mean, we were just tweeting at each other about this because we, you had posted something that was about like the best villains in, you know, in uh, in comic books or MCU. Yeah, Yeah, and you you mentioned Killmonger. I'm like, I have such a hard time thinking of Killmonger as a villain. And, you know, even though he does awful things, because I feel empathy for his point of view. Right. And that best serves that story. (laughs) Best serves the story. But, but, you know, like, if you're the Terminator or if you're Mike Myers or if you're Freddy Krueger or whatever, it doesn't best serve the story to to try and define the humanity. It best serves the story to go the other way. So it's not a hard and fast rule. 
Speaking of the story of High Castle, like I, I did mean what I said. I'm finding um, some joy right now in watching stories and taking in content that is set in dystopian universes or like just honestly alternate realities where everything's all fucked up, which High Castle <laughs> really does. Like, like, and it's weird because in a lot of ways, uh, High Castle, like, is it's based on a book by Philip K. Dick, uh, and you know, and it's a it's an older book, and yet it also really reflected, especially when it first premiered, you know, right around the the time of Trump being elected. Like there was a, and there was a big rise of populism across the world. Like there was a little bit of mirroring, you know, and. Uh, fortune telling and it's weird to to watch something like that and find I don't know joy and solace and escape like (laughs) like do do you have a similar experience with High Castle like do you do you see the reality like does something like High Castle help you kind of understand what it is that we're going through in this really fucked up world (laughs) um I've always loved dystopian stuff. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, it, I think it helps in the sense of like, you see how easily things could go that way. And it almost becomes a guiding principle by you're like, that's not, that's what we should not do. Yeah. That's, yeah. 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 But it's, so it's, it's a, yeah. It's kind of cathartic to watch it, I guess. Like, I, I hate watching press conferences from the States. Like, I hate it so much. I don't want to hear these people talk. But I will watch Rufus Sewell talk and say all those very similar <laughs> words. I'm totally I mean, cool with that. It's very cathartic for me. charming and gorgeous, too. That well, there is problem. that. That is a beautiful cast, for sure. Okay, on the filmmaking front, on the storytelling front... Um, I mean, obviously, as I've indicated, I am such a huge fan of your work. Uh, Parabola is right up there. But the day we met as well, like I, I'm still haunted by that last shot of you sitting on one side and then the mama and the baby sitting on the other side. Like, it's so moving to me. Um, what is a Lee shortened film? Like, what is it that I am loving about your work that I just cannot seem to put into words? Uh, I, I'm, thank you. I, I don't know. What is Alicia? I, uh, or what are you setting out? What kind of stories are you setting out to tell? What kind of emotions are you trying to get out of me, Lee? <laughs> it's becoming very aggressive, this interview. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Damn it, Lee. Why do you make me feel things? What are you trying to make me feel? Well, I I think I'm I, I think I'm less interested in what you feel. How that's dare you cool. say that? That sounds awful. I'm a heartless monster. <laughs> um, I don't care how you feel, Sabrina. <laughs> I, I I would re- I like I like asking questions. Mm. I, I like the films to ask. Well, to make you ask questions like, you know, for me, the, the central thing for Parabola was, does this man deserve forgiveness and redemption? Right? Mm. That was always the question. 
and I want and I don't have the answer, but I'll present the pieces and then I want I want you to go away and be like, I don't I do or I don't agree with that. And I think the day we met's a bit like that too. It's like I, I just want you to leave with like, was that worth it? Or what is he going if I was him, what would I do next? Or, mm. it, or what what are my what are my expectations and my beliefs around family and how does the film challenge or reaffirm what I think about those things? Now, both of those films that you mentioned um, have ambiguous endings, especially Parabola. And I know that that can drive some people completely insane, you know, um, not yeah. having like, how do you how, how did how do you respond to people who want a an answer tied up in a bow are you going to be telling stories that are less ambiguous moving forward probably not (laughs) (laughs) i mean i would say someone once said to me um storytelling is like math in a way right Hmm. it's and the trick to an ambiguous ending is it it can't actually be that ambiguous because uh, like I guess two examples and it's very like obviously very dry but think about this if I put on a page two plus two equals I don't have to write four because we know the answer is four so or if I if I drop a ball like a ball from my hand we know it's going to hit the ground right so in terms of my scripts I like it to be like my film is two plus two equals or my film is me dropping the ball, but I shouldn't have to end the film by writing four or by showing a shot of the ball hitting the ground because you know those things. So if I've done my job correctly, the film has enough pieces for you to work out what the ending is in your mind. Yeah. Do your actors demand answers, though, from you? Like, is it important for, for you know, like a character, like Hiro's character, like who is, you know lives in that ambiguous space, at least as far as the audience is concerned, to have a clear idea, a clearer idea than the audience has? Uh, I think for some actors, yeah, because that's part of their process. So they're used to working on plays where they have the whole picture to, to map out their arc. Yeah. But I think, you know, for someone like Hero, who's done so much television, he's used to just making it up as he goes. Yeah. And, uh, like, I'm always torn to as an actor and, and a filmmaker myself, because on one hand, sometimes when you know the end, you can create a more satisfying journey because y- you know what's what seeds to plant in act one that will pay off in act three. So I totally get that, too. On the flip side, you know, we're supposed to be kind of simulating reality and you and I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So we just make choices in the moment based on whatever feels right now. Hmm. Um, so, kind of know. I mean, living in the core, I kind of know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow, and it's what happened yesterday and three weeks ago. I'm picking up what you're what you're putting down. I am. Um, I, I, another question, kind of adjusted to that, and then we will play a, a game of favorite things. Um, is Hiro Kanagawa the coolest person in the Vancouver film and TV industry? As I suspect he might be. Yeah, quite probably. I think he might be. Yeah, I had such a good a good talk with him, um, and I had completely forgotten the fact that he is in that 
amazing pet shop scene from Best in Show, which I will include yes. a link in in the footnote, a link to in the footnotes for this episode. So, okay, Lee Shorten, are you ready to play favorite things? As ready as I'll ever be. Okay, so just so you know, uh, these questions were developed by a nine-year-old. So she's cutthroat. She wants answers and she doesn't want you to think about it. So keep that in mind as you answer. And you're allowed to swear because she's my nine-year-old. Okay, so <laughs> what is your favorite song? Uh, oh, uh, Lateralis by Tool. Okay. What is your favorite way to spend a lazy Sunday in Vancouver? Uh, grab some food and then play some video games with my girlfriend. Oh, what video games? Uh, we play a lot of Overwatch. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, are you doing Animal Crossing? No. Okay. Roblox? What's that? Okay. Okay, well, let's move on before yeah, she thinks you're totally that. uncool. Favorite junk food? Uh, salt and vinegar chips. Yes! Oh, and then they burn your mouth. It's the best. Favorite superhero? Yeah. Uh, God. Uh, Aquaman. <laughs> really? Favorite villain? Uh, um, these days, probably Killmonger, actually. Yeah, yeah, but with a star there that he's not really a villain. Okay, favorite TV series when you were nine years old? Shit, what was I watching when I was nine? Uh, would it, probably would have been The Simpsons. <gasps> She's going to love that answer. She has discovered The Simpsons, all 30 seasons of it, on Disney Plus during the core. Uh, favorite I... movie when you were nine? I think it was uh, Big Trouble in Little China. I love that answer. Wow. (laughs) Favorite hot beverage? Coffee. Favorite cold beverage? Uh, Beer. (laughs) Beer. Uh, Favorite vacation destination? You know, for when we can travel. Again. Uh, ooh, probably probably back home to Australia. Aw. Fa- and this is the last question. And this is the one that she cares about the most. Favorite animal. Oh, um. Ooh, you know, I, I don't know what to say cats or dogs. I don't know what to say here. Um, you have to pick one. You have. I I guess I'll just oh uh, cats I suppose cat, yeah. <laughs> she'll love that answer. The dogs listening though will be like, oh. yeah. are we shunned in the dog community now? What have I no, done? they'll still love you. That's why you can say you love cats more because dogs will be like, oh, 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 please love ours. <laughs> Lee Shorten, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for coming out here today, or coming to skype anyway where can our fans find you and follow you on the social media uh you can find me on twitter and instagram um both at lc shorten lc shorten and we will have links 
links galore to the social media accounts and to all of the various films, including that Will Shakespeare one, which I just mentioned in passing. I forget what the story was with that. I know Nick Carella posted it like a few years ago. And I just... Yeah, I can't believe you've seen that. <laughs> I, I lo- I've seen everything. Made in Vancouver? I've seen it. I loved it. I wanted more of that. Um, I'll, I'll post links to all the work, all the articles, everything in the episode notes for this episode. So thank you, Lee. Thank you. Uh, And a final message to our listeners. I have many new episodes of the YBR Screen Scene podcast in the can. I will continue to release new content twice a week during the core. This in addition to the... I think 90 episodes we've already released in the last year. We've got you covered. And we will just continue recording episodes over Skype indefinitely. Keep in touch on the social media at YVR Screen Scene and by email at Sabrina at YVRScreenScene.com. You are not alone. We are going to get through this. Thanks for listening. Hiring professional performers makes all the difference to the success of any recorded media project. Did you know that the Union of BC Performers, ACTRA, provides agreements for all budgets and types of productions, including commercials, TV series and movies, feature films, from big budget to Canadian indies and student films, animation series, video games, web series, and even streaming video on demand, like Netflix? For instance, our highly successful UBCP ACTRA ultra-low-budget agreement encourages and facilitates artistic collaboration between professional performers and independent producers who wish to produce very low-budget or even no-budget productions. No matter what your budget, we've got you covered, and you too can benefit from UBCP ACTRA's award-winning world-class performers. So, if you need actors, voiceover artists, stunt coordinators, stunt performers, singers, dancers, puppeteers, stand-ins, background performers, ranging across any age or demographic, then just contact us at UBCP ACTRA. Make your project the very best that it can be. This message was read by a UBCP ACTRA member. Go to ubcp.com for more information.